Well, good morning, Hillcrest. I said good morning, Hillcrest. Great to see everybody this morning. Welcome to our Nine Mile Campus here. Welcome to those of you who are at Spanish Trail across town, worshiping together with us, and to those of you that are tuning in in our online uh, broadcast, wherever you may be, we welcome you this morning. I live for Sunday. Sunday's my favorite day of the week, has been for years and years and years. For this very reason, we get to come together in the presence of God to sing praises to God, to be blessed by his word, to draw strength from one another as well as from the presence of the spirit of God. You can't get what you get here anywhere else on planet earth, amen. There is power when the people of God come together. Let's welcome him into his house today, amen. (laughs) Who's ready to get into the word? Would you shout amen this morning? I'm in the gospel of John for a few minutes uh, this morning. Uh, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the last chapter of the gospel of John. If you're new to Hillcrest today, you're kind of coming in on the tail end of a 12-week series of messages, which we will conclude two weeks from today on Easter Sunday. We've been looking at some of the major and pointed questions. We might call them loaded questions that our Lord Jesus Christ asked as a part of his three-year public ministry. Jesus, of course, was a master teacher, and our Lord taught in part by asking pointed questions for the purpose of developing sharp disciples. And he did it a bunch of times. Obviously, if we examined every question that Jesus asked, we'd probably have to take a couple of years and do an exhaustive series. And so we're being selective and taking a dozen that deal with varying subjects along the way. And today we surely arrive at one of the most familiar, most recognized questions uh, that our Lord Jesus ever asked. And it comes, frankly, in a passage of Scripture that presents a bit of a challenge to preach just in one setting. Those of you that are young preachers in the making here today, you could take all of chapter 21 of the Gospel of John and easily do a four-part thematic sermon series from it. My responsibility is to kind of reduce it down to its most concentrated level and stick kind of with the subject that we have this morning, but there's four or five different subject angles that a preacher could run with this, and so I've prayed through it, and I prayed that you would listen closely through it with both eyes this morning that we could find the common denominator that we need to take away as a part of this very important series. This, of course, is a hugely important question that we're going to examine today, one that Jesus poses to his impetuous disciple whose name was Peter. It's a question that he poses to him not once, not twice, but three times, which, of course, emphasizes just how important the subject matter is. Let's take a look at our text this morning, John 21, and uh, we're going to be looking at parts of the whole chapter, but primarily beginning here in verse 15. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. The Bible says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, 
tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Father, this morning as we come into your presence today, we thank you for the eternal inspired and errant word of the living God. Really nothing I say has any consequence today. It's all about your word and so help us to understand its clear meaning and do so by the presence of your master teacher, the Holy Spirit of God. May he have complete freedom to move among hearts that are wide open to hear from heaven today and move us to take a further step in our relationship with Jesus Christ that we may be drawn closer to him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. This is obviously the last recorded conversation that our Lord Jesus Christ has with his disciple named Peter. And it's interesting that his last recorded words to Peter, words that are recorded here in verse 19, and then again in verse 22, a little later on in the chapter, are the same words that he spoke to Peter the very first time that he ever met him. The words that he spoke to Peter at the beginning of his calling at the end of his ministry are exactly the same. Jesus says to his firebrand disciple, follow me. And you should know by now this is pretty much the most important command that Jesus ever gives. It's the fundamental command of the Lord Jesus Christ, the command around which all other commands revolve as it relates to our relationship to Jesus and our life spent as a disciple of Christ. This command, follow me, really, I think, is Christianity boiled down and reduced to its most concentrated level. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple? To be a Christian disciple means to follow after Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Well, the simplest and most direct answer to our understanding of the basic command of Jesus Christ is exactly that. Jesus says to Peter and he says to all of us, you follow me. This conversation between Jesus and Peter is important for a number of reasons. It's important for what it reveals about things like failure and restoration, reconciliation. It's important for what it reveals about grace and forgiveness. It's important for what it reveals about usefulness in ministry. But it's also important for what it communicates <clears throat> about three important, even crucial dimensions of Christian 
discipleship. And I want you to write them down this morning if you're taking notes in the sermon guide today. Because first of all, we understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ in this final conversation between Jesus and Peter. We learn first of all that to follow Christ is to love Christ. This is a very familiar story which takes place, of course, after the resurrection of Jesus. Our Lord is in the 40-day period between his resurrection and his ascension. And after his initial appearances to the disciples and to others in Jerusalem, he instructs his disciples at some point to leave the city and go back from whence they had originally come, of course, in Galilee, back in the north country. There'd been a lot of stress and there'd been a lot of confusion in the wake of the resurrection. So he sends them away and they go back to what was their home country. But it's Peter uh, who's front and center in this story. And of course, you should know that at this stage of the game, Peter is still dealing very deeply with his colossal failure in the wake of Jesus' suffering and death. It was a failure, of course. It was marked by Peter doing the very thing that he had vowed, vowed to the face of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would never do. Namely, he had denied Christ, not once, not twice, but three times, yelling, screaming, cursing the whole time. It was an ugly spectacle. And when it was over, we know that Peter's heart was broken. I think there was a part of him that could not believe. Have y'all ever said something? And just after you had said it, you think, I can't believe I just said that. And I think that's exactly how Peter felt. The Bible says in Luke 22 that he went out and wept bitterly. Anybody in the house this morning ever felt like they have failed the Lord in some way? Amen. I think that that's epidemic among those of us who follow Jesus Christ. And I think it's important to recognize that before we all unload on Peter, we need to remember that we're really all failures. I mean, we're failures because of sin, isn't that right? Sin has rendered us all on the outs with God. Now, we all have value, we're all important to God, we all matter to God, but to fail is to fall short, and the Bible is very clear about that. All have sinned, and what? fall short of the glory of God. Does that leave anybody out? Let me give you a Greek study. You know what the word all means in the Greek New Testament? It means all. That means everybody. None of us are left out. We all fall short. And in that sense, theologically and spiritually, we're all failures. And from a practical standpoint, even beyond that, the very best of us fail in life from time to time. Business leaders, political leaders, they'll all tell you, if you don't fail from time to time, you're not trying hard enough. So we all fail in life. We fail spiritually. We fail practically. Some of y'all have failed as recently as this morning. Amen. And as paradoxical as it might sound, the Bible is in a very real sense a book about failure. At least it's a book that records a bunch of them, right? Can you think of any Bible character from Genesis to Revelation that failed? How about all over the place? Noah failed. Abraham failed. Moses failed. 
David failed, Elijah failed, Jonah failed, Paul failed, they all failed, and many, many others beside them. And those kinds of personal failures almost always come with one thing attached to them. Usually when there is the presence of failure, there is at the same time a lingering sense of regret. Regret and failure are inevitably two sides of the same coin, particularly with whatever you've done goes completely against everything that you've ever believed and everything that you've ever stood for. That was Peter. Peter was a man of extremes, right? I mean, think about it. The same man who outside of Jesus walked on water is the same man who went potty mouth and denied the Lord three times when he said he would never do it. And even though he'd seen the empty tomb, he'd seen it himself. And even though the Lord had personally appeared to Peter, he is still living at this stage of his life with a millstone of guilt and a millstone of regret hanging around his neck. And it's that regret that's kind of at this stage of the game pulled him out of the game in the kingdom. I mean, he felt like he'd no longer represented any use to the Lord Jesus Christ no longer really part of the kingdom team. And so he goes back to Galilee with his tail tucked between his legs, probably feeling a sense of relief to be going home to familiar territory again. And once he gets there, Peter does what a lot of us do in the wake of failure. He goes back to his old life. That's a tendency for people when they think they've disappointed the Lord. They tend to retreat and you tend to retrench, you go back. He goes back, Peter does, to the very life that Jesus had called him from. He goes back to fishing. And six of the other disciples go right back with him. Now, can I just say to all the anglers this morning, it's not that there's anything wrong with fishing, amen. But Christ had called him from that to a different kind of fishing. Christ had called him to leave the nets and to come and what? Follow me. And following Jesus meant that he was to spend, spend his life fishing on a higher order. No longer was he to fritter away his time fishing for mullet, he was to be fishing for men. I assume they have mullet in the Sea of Galilee. Different kind of fishing. Follow me, Jesus told him, and I will make you to become a fisher of, of men. You leave those nets and you come and follow me. But Peter does what you and I have to be careful about doing when we're living with guilt and living with regret. He gives up. He gives up and he goes back. There's a great statement that Jesus makes about the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And you have that great litany of the seven churches in six out of the seven, Jesus has a real problem with. In the very first one, the one right out of the gate is the church at Ephesus. And the Lord looks at that church and he tells the apostle John, write this down and get it to Ephesus as fast as you can. I have one thing against you. You have left your first love. And that's what Peter looked like at this stage of the game. He left his first love and he went back. To the old ways. And it's here that we're reminded that the heart and soul of the gospel is the grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's at the very point where Peter goes back that our Lord Jesus shows up. The disciples have been fishing all night. You go back and read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21 and they're just out there fishing. And as had been the case at the beginning where Jesus met Peter the first time, they were out on the water three years earlier when Jesus had met Peter and they hadn't caught any fish then either. And Jesus gives them advice and Peter wants to rebuke this guy because you're a carpenter, not a fisherman. We're fishermen. Stay in your lane, Jesus, whoever you are. And yet they do what Jesus said and they haul in this boatload of fish and that's exactly what happens here in John 21. They're not catching anything. Jesus is on the shore. He's anonymous to them at this time. They don't know who he is. And he tells them, throw the nets out on the other side of the boat and the boat nearly sinks as a result of the catch of fish. 153, John tells us later on. And by the time they get to the shore, They've identified that it's Jesus, that he's just shown up out of nowhere. And they find that Jesus had already had some fish. Where he got the fish, we don't know because the boat hadn't got to shore. But by the time they make it to shore with this colossal catch of fish, Jesus is already frying them up a fish breakfast right there on the shoreline over a charcoal fire. And it's there by the charcoal fire that Jesus turns his attention to Peter. Now, it's interesting. Think about this because it was over a charcoal fire that Peter denied his Lord three times. So I don't think it's an incidental detail that Jesus has established a charcoal fire again to deal with Peter in the wake of this incredible failure. And what happens next shows that Jesus still loves him, and Jesus has absolutely no plans to cast him aside, even though he had failed. Because based on this dialogue that takes place, Jesus is going to show that failure doesn't have to define us. Sometimes we let it, but it doesn't have to. Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to declare his allegiance to him. And he does so by asking him one of the most identifiable questions that Jesus ever asked to anybody. One that has nothing to do with theology. Jesus doesn't question Peter about what he believes. He doesn't question Peter about preaching. He doesn't question Peter about leadership or about church tradition. He questions Peter about his love for Jesus. Simon, son of John, interestingly, doesn't call him Peter even though Jesus was the one that gave him the name Peter. And so it creates a little bit of a distance. Jesus knows that he's messed up, and Jesus knows that he's gone back, and because he's gone back, Jesus calls him by his old name, Simon, son of John. And then he asks him the great question, do you love me more than these? And that raises another question as we talk about it this morning. More than these what? What's he talking about? Do you love me more than these? Is Jesus saying, Simon, do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than your fishing nets? Do you love me more than your boat? Do you love me more than your old way of life? Do you love me more than these things? 
Or is Jesus looking around at the other disciples who were there? And is he asking Peter, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than you love these men? Do you love me more than you love your friends? Do you love me more than you love your brethren, more than you love your fishing partners? Do you love me more than you love these men? Am I more important to you than the other friendships and the other relationships of your life? Or could Jesus be saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these men love me? Now, we might think that would be the least likely of the alternatives, but frankly, I think it's probably the most likely. He's questioning Peter about his comparison, about the love compare. Do you love me more than these guys love me? Because you have to remember, Peter had given Jesus reason for that kind of comparison back in the upper room the night before he died when he said to Jesus right to his face, though they all fall away because of you, I will never, what? I'll never fall away. They might run from you. I get what you're saying because these guys are cowards, but even though they all flee, they all run, insert parenthesis, I love you more than they do. And I ain't going to run, Jesus. And that may well be what Jesus is getting at here. Do you love me really more than these guys do? Because you said you did, but by your action, it doesn't appear that you really do. And here's the thing. It's probably a good thing that the these are not defined. Because the fact of the matter is, it's all of those things and more, right? Because there's not a single thing in this life, not a single thing, not a single person, not a single relationship, not a single concept, that one who is following Jesus should love more than they love Jesus Christ himself. You shouldn't love your marriage more than you love Jesus, your wife, your husband, your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your job, your hobbies, your things, your money. And that's often one of the most difficult concepts for people to grasp practically. Most everybody in the room knows that. I mean, that's Christianity 101. When I say, you ain't supposed to love anything more than you love Jesus, everybody in the room knows that. Boy, living it's a different thing though, right? It's hard to do that. I remember years ago, I gave a response after preaching a message about love and our love for the Lord, not from this text, but from another one. And a lady came up to me that had been a member of that church for 40 years. And she came up to me and she looked at me and I called her by name and I said, how can I help you? And she said, I don't know that I can do that. And I said, you don't know that you can do what? I don't know that I can love Jesus more than I love my kids. And this is a person that had been in church walking with the Lord for years. And I wanted to say, you've been coming to this church for longer than I've been alive. And you haven't come to grips with this concept yet. And so when Jesus says, do you love me more than these? This is kind of the foundational question about a like a thriving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ around which everything else revolves as it relates to following after the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful he doesn't define it because you can fill in the blank with whatever you want and it would still be right. Do you love me more than 
what? So we're supposed to devote everything to loving Christ because that's what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. When he was asked that by the religious leaders of his day, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? Jesus didn't hesitate. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: you shall love the Lord your God. In fact, let's just say it together. Read it right off the screen together. You shall love the Lord your God with all your, and with all your, and with all your mind. Jesus said the whole Old Testament revolves around that one law of God. That reduces the concept of biblical Christianity down as it relates to the relationship we have with Christ to what it really boils down to, our love for Christ. Nothing is to be greater in terms of what we love than our love for God in Christ. Now, you notice that Jesus just kept hammering this issue three times. I mean, Peter's heart was grieved because Jesus just kept on coming. And he wouldn't let up, but he took his medicine. And three times, one question for every denial of Christ. Peter denied Christ three times. Jesus peppered him with the same question three times. And Peter takes his medicine and three times replies what? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he does it in a way that everybody around the fire could hear. And this was something that would prove to be very important for Peter to get out of that funk and move forward. And there's some people here today that are in a spiritual funk. And it's probably because of something that you've done that you felt like has disappointed God. And yet the reality is, if you're gonna move forward in your relationship with God, it will be because of this understanding that God loves you with an everlasting love. And he expects you to love him more than you love anything else because to follow Christ is first and foremost to love Christ. Does that make sense this morning? Secondly, we take away from this passage also that to follow Christ is not only to love Christ, but to follow Christ is to serve Christ because this is anything but a one-sided conversation. I mean, each time Peter affirms his love for Jesus, I think it's just beautiful that our Lord responds to Peter's response by affirming his confidence in Peter. Man, that's grace. Because when people fail, a lot of times we just want to write them off, right? But Peter doesn't write, or Jesus doesn't write Peter off. He's not there so much to discipline Peter as he is to encourage Peter. He's there not to cast Peter aside, but to support Peter, to restore Peter to a life of active ministry service. Jesus does not show up on the shoreline in Galilee to rub it in. He shows up actually to rub it out. And that's something that we all need to remember about our Lord. When he confronts the sinfulness of our life, he does so not to rub it in, not to lord it over us, not to make us feel guilty, not to punish us in some way. He's demonstrated by what he's done for us in Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that he's come not to rub our sinfulness in, but to rub it out. If we'll by faith respond to him and follow him, Jesus asked three questions 
Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Each question is followed by three affirmations from Peter. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And then each affirmation is followed by three public charges from Jesus back to Peter. He tells him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, obviously, these are all slightly different, but only slightly. But even though they're different, they all communicate basically the same thing. Peter was to feed the people of God, and Peter was to lead the people of God, which, by the way, are the two primary functions of the pastoral role. role. Feed the people and lead the people. And this is exactly what Jesus is telling Peter that he still expected him to do. Preach the word and care for God's flock. Now, this is beautiful because, again, it's a magnificent picture of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We tend in our culture, we base everything on performance. How we view people is typically performance-based. And in the business world especially, if you're going to advance and if you're going to be given greater responsibility, advancement and responsibility are usually rewards that are conditioned upon observable success. You gotta perform. And if you perform, then I'll reward you. But let a person fail. Let a person fall short. And the end result is usually professional or ministerial disaster. You become a byword. You become the guy or the gal that used to be. But that's not the pattern that's supposed to be followed in the kingdom of God. I mean, failure never has to be the last word when it comes to following Jesus as a disciple. And that's really good news this morning because I say it again, we are all failures and we're all going to fail even as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you better hope that failure doesn't have to be the last word or we're all gonna be finished. People fail in ministry all the time. You know it as well as I do. Full-time ministers fail, lay ministers fail, Connect group leaders fail, children's workers fail, people fail in ministry all the time. And most of the time, if it's considered really consequential, they are one and done in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Christians sometimes have this really undesirable reputation. As I have heard since I was a little boy in church, Christians have the reputation of what? Shooting their shooting the wounded. That's right. And that's a tragedy. I mean, that's what the religious folk in the parable of the Good Samaritan did. Guy was wounded. They passed by on the other side. Might as well just shot him because they didn't care. One guy stopped, took good care of him. That's what we're all supposed to do in the kingdom of God, even in the face of egregious failure. Now, no doubt, This case study we're looking at this morning is not one size fits all. Every case of personal failure, every case of moral failure is different and we have to look at each case on its merits and we should handle them biblically and redemptively. But there is an overarching principle here that where there is repentance and where there is confession in the wake of sin, there can be restoration 
and usefulness in the family of faith. You do not have to be one and done because of failure, nor should you be if you have a right heart before the Lord. There are really lots of bad sins to be sure. But would you not agree that it'd be really hard to find a sin more consequential than publicly denying Christ with curses? Hard to find one like that. And that's what Peter did. And yet Jesus goes to him. And Jesus loves him enough not to leave him wallowing in the muck of regret. Useless, unproductive in ministry. Jesus said, I'm not leaving you here. So he seeks him out. And not only does he forgive him, he brings him back. He restores him to a fruitful place among the people of God. Because as a disciple, Jesus wants Peter to know, you've said three times that you love me. Here's another lesson I want you to know. You can't say you love me and not love my people. You can't say you love Jesus and not love his church, not love his bride, not love all men and women who are following after Christ. So Peter... You say you love me, here's what I want you to do. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. It's a beautiful picture of restoration and reconciliation. And this is our calling. Abide in Christ and feed the sheep. Every single one of us. Follow Jesus and help others live biblically. Were you all still with me? Amen. I got to finish, and I'm just getting warmed up this morning. Let me give you one last thing today, because I've got to stop. To follow Christ is to what? Say it out loud. Follow Christ is to, first of all, what? Love Christ. Second, to follow Christ is to serve Christ. You got that good. Finally, to follow Christ is to become like Christ. Oh, I've heard that before. That'll sound very familiar to everybody, but those who've been at Hillcrest only a little while. What's our purpose at Hillcrest? We've stated it. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in, say it out loud, becoming like Christ by worshiping God, connecting with others, and serving the world. And in this text this morning, it appears to me that Jesus' mission is to help Peter do those very things himself. Now, I mentioned a moment, ago, a moment ago that there was no doubt that this was a painful dialogue for Peter. The Bible says that. His heart was grieved. And the way the conversation concludes is really just as sharp. In verse 18, Jesus kind of brings this charcoal fire conversation of restoration with Peter to a conclusion uh, by basically telling him, now I really want you to listen up because in verse 18, he begins with that formula, truly, truly, I say to you, or as the King James says, verily, verily, I say unto you, which is Jesus. It's a stylistic device that basically says, hey, listen up. Everybody listening, say amen, right? That's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now everybody's listening in. And then Jesus gives him what amounts to a prophetic word. When you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, let me be quick to add, Jesus is not talking about a nursing home here. 
Because that's what it sounds like when you first read it. They didn't have nursing homes back then. That's kind of what it sounds like. And so we read that and we think, well, yeah, man, I had to do that with my dad. Well, mom had to do that with granddaddy, right? That's not what he's talking about. Because this is really important because it reminds us that Jesus goes to meet Peter by the shore that day, not just to redeem and to restore Peter from his past, but to prepare Peter for his future. And for Peter, his future as a disciple would involve, if I could use Paul's phrase from Philippians 3, becoming like Christ in his what? In his death. Now, that's what Paul said he wanted for his life. I want to know Christ. I want to gain Christ. I want to become like Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And for Peter, that was certainly going to be a reality. It's a rather stark allusion to death by crucifixion. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The stripping of the clothes, the stretching out of the hands, the humiliating procession to a public place of execution. That's what's bound up in this prophetic word to Peter. And if we don't get it, John says, via a parenthesis, I'm going to tell you what Jesus was talking about here. That's verse 19. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, say it out loud, follow me all the way to a cross. Peter did. And church tradition, the writing of the early church fathers tells us that when he was old, he indeed stretched out his hands and followed his Lord unto death. Crucified, Peter was, upside down on a cross of wood. Let me just say this morning as we conclude that following Jesus obviously involves a priority love for Christ Following Jesus involves ministry service to Christ, serving Christ by serving others. But then to become like Christ and to follow Jesus also means a willingness to follow him even unto death, if that's what it takes to fulfill God's plan for your life. Jesus was very clear about this for himself and for those who would follow him. You remember it from Matthew 16 where Jesus said, if anyone would, follow, uh, would come after me, he must do three things. What does he say? He must what? Deny himself, two, take up his cross and follow me. But don't miss the middle part. The middle child there is very significant. Taking up a cross is basically saying, Lord, I love you so much. I give you my life. I intend to follow you for the rest of my life. And if need be, I'll die on a cross of wood. If it means honoring my Lord and bringing glory to God. Or I'll die any other way. Whatever it means. Remember John said, Jesus told this to Peter to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And so the question this morning is, is your life in the hand of God unconditionally? 
That was true for Peter. Even to become like Christ in his death. Jesus taught earlier in the Gospel of John, greater love has no man than this, than someone what? Lay down his life for his friend. And brothers and sisters, when it comes to love, that's the greatest test of all. Are you willing to follow Christ, even to suffering and death? To do that undeniably means that you have to confront today the most pointed question that Jesus ever asked. Do you love me more than these? This is God's word, and let all God's people say amen this morning.